it's been about uh, six years now uh, since my cousin Chris uh, passed away with cancer. And Chris was born in New Orleans, and so his girls uh, had never been to uh, New Orleans, and so the Memorial Day weekend after Chris passed away, we decided as a family to go down to New Orleans, and um, so they came down here from Nashville. We took the train, rode Amtrak down uh, down there, spent the weekend there together, and uh, kind of had a lot of different experiences. A lot of things happen. Uh, it's always, you know, New Orleans isn't really the place you take a whole bunch of kids, but there were like 16 of us. Uh, we had a, a really good time, but of everything that happened, there was kind of one memory that, that sticks out to me the most. Uh, when we were in the search for the best food in New Orleans, which is an important search to be on uh, in New Orleans, uh, my sister Kara, who happens to be here this morning, uh, Kara had a student who was a Katrina transplant and told her about a place and said, if you're in New Orleans, this is where you need to go. And so we took the trolley down uh, to the end of the Elysian Fields line. We had to walk about a quarter, half mile, somewhere in that that range to get to this place. It was called Melba's. And um, we go there, and I'll just tell you, if, if you've never been to New Orleans, number one, there might not be any reason to go. But if you happen to find yourself there, the reason to go is to eat. And what you want to look for is this. So we went into Melba's, and this is the sign that you're in the right place. If you go into like a Cajun restaurant and it's really nice and pretty, you're in the wrong place. Melba's is half laundromat, half restaurant you're in the right place. Like that's the place you want to eat. And so we go in there and it was the best food by far we had all week. It was phenomenal. Cheaper, better, everything was perfect. They even, I mean, even you could wash your clothes if you got too dirty, it was perfect. So we stay there, we hung out and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of people in the restaurant that night. And so uh, we kind of hung out for a little while and then we had to go back and get back to our hotel. And about the time we decide to leave, New Orleans does what New Orleans does and the bottom dropped out. I mean, it was just torrential downpour. So, you know, there's 16 of us, and so we've got kids with us. So I said to Heather, I was like, y'all just go on ahead. I'll stay with mom. This was, ends up being the last trip we ever took with my mom. And so Heather and I both had a backpack with us. And so in the backpack, Heather pulls out her backpack, gets her rain jacket on. She puts her rain jacket on. I open up my backpack, get out my rain jacket, and I get it out and I look at my mom and I'm like, I, I can't put this on. So I put my, the rain jacket on my mom, I zip it up, I pull the hood real tight, you know, where she doesn't have any peripheral vision, and we start walking back. And also another thing about New Orleans, if you haven't been there, is the sidewalks are old and the trees are old. And if you put trees next to a sidewalk and you give it some age, those trees are going to push those sidewalks up. And so there's not even a good place to walk on a lot of these streets. And so it is pitch black outside, it's pouring down rain, and my mom and I, and I'm, I mean, we are, I'm not exaggerating, I'm like, we are, you know, we're doing this number for a half a mile, you know, quarter of a mile, half a mile, and just, mom, look at this, watch this, I mean, and it's just coming down. We get a little bit into it, and my mom, who is dealing, if, if, if some of you don't know, is in the midst of, we're probably five, four or five years into dementia at this point, and so we're, we're walking along, she stops, and she turns up, and she has to completely turn because she has no peripheral vision because of the hood. Completely turns, and she looks up at me. And she said, well, now, where's your rain jacket? And I said, well, I just, I don't have it right now. And she looks at me as serious as could be and said, well, that's not very smart. 
And guys, I, I tell you that story because in that whole trip, in that whole year, months from losing Chris, we, were, we didn't know it at the time, but we were a month from putting my mom into a memory care center. Of all the hard stuff that year, it was an incredible amount of joy. There was joy in that moment. I look back at that moment as, as one of those just precious memories that, that fills me with joy. And when we talk about joy, we, we, we miss sometimes that joy comes in the heartache, that joy comes in the difficult times, that we miss joy so many times because we don't see it when it's the hardest to see, but when it's the hardest to see is, is when it is there. Last week, we talked about love, and so I want to do a little bit of a review, just real quick, kind of run through some things, because what I hope you see by the end of this is that without love, we can't have joy, so we've got to go back and do a little bit of love first, uh, and, and last week, I tried to kind of do a crash course on love. We could do a whole series on it. We could write hundreds of books on it, so let's just kind of go back through that real quick. I talked about four, uh, four of the about seven loves that are in Greek before that kind of apply to us and that we talk about. When we talk about, um, we talk about love, but then as I would kind of argue that we need to be talking about when we talk about God. But those loves, Greek storge, which is an affectionate love, the, the love we see between a mother and a child. Philia, uh, which is the best friend love, love between two friends. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, or the city name Philadelphia, Delphi in Greek is uh, city. Philia is brotherly love. And so we call Philadelphia the city of Okay, we did this last week, so it's, we all need to pay attention. All right, so, so, we, so brotherly love, philia, eros is sensual love. And then what we talked about last week, agape, is a love that wills the good of another. And this is usually the love where we kind of focus in and talk about God. But part of my challenge last week, and I think that what we need to understand about love is, is that God is present in all four of these loves. Yes, agape is the best word we have to describe God's love. However, these other four loves, we see God's love in that. We see God's love, as I said last week, when you have children. Some of you have, uh, have had children, uh, not too recent. I'm trying to think, the, the freeze might be the, in here. Well, well, you know, so some of, these, some of you people that are newer to having babies, like that, that changes the way you understand love. It changes what you, what you thought love was. A kid comes in and that changes that. That changes how you understand love. That changes how we understand God. So Storge helps us kind of understand that. And these loves are things that change our view of God and change us kind of how we understand God. So another piece of this is, if we look at Galatians chapter five, where we kind of run to the fruit of the spirit, I want you to see these, how these things are tied together. So Paul tells us in Galatians five, but the fruit of the spirit is what? Love. What's the very next one he mentions? Joy. What are we talking about today? Joy. All right. These are tied together. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ have been crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so when we talk about love, it is impossible, I believe, to separate it from these other fruits. And I think it's impossible to separate the fruits from love. They all go together. They all work together. 
And these are important that we see kind of how they have this, uh, this almost kind of dovetail relationship of how they work together. Another passage that we uh, talk about a lot when we talk about love is uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, tells us love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds what? No joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices where? In the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, which is what we talked about two weeks ago. Hopes all things, endures all things. Do I have verse eight up there? No, I don't. All right, so we see, we see this, that these fruits are tied together. So what I want you to see is that the fruit of the spirit loses its true nature when we try to compartmentalize each one of these things. When we say love stands alone, joy stands alone, self-control stands alone, all of these things come together. The other thing I want you all to understand about, about joy and about love is, is that joy flows. Joy flows out of love, but not just any love. Joy flows out of perfect love. Now, what do I mean by perfect love? The, the example that I'm going to use was, uh, I bought something this week. I bought a new highlighter. All right, anybody love highlighters? I love highlighters. It's hard to find orange highlighters by themselves. Like you always have to buy all these other colors. And I'm like, I just want orange. You could buy yellow by itself, but not orange. So I had to buy another yellow because I've got a whole drawer full of them just to get an orange. But I bought a new highlighter this week. Now, this example is an example from uh, Dr. Greathouse. When I took doctrinal holiness in college, he, used, uh, he did this exact same example. This is where I got it. But he used a... Uh, dry erase marker. I have a love-hate relationship with dry erase markers. They never seem to work for me. So this illustration doesn't work for me, but highlighters I love, okay? This was the example he told us. This highlighter, is it the perfect highlighter? And what he said that day in class, I remember so well was, what makes a perfect highlighter is that it performs its function. What is its function? That it highlights, yes. And so if I go in here in my little book and I do it, it, it does exactly what it was created to do. Now, does that mean that there will never be a better highlighter created? Probably not. There, there's probably gonna be a better one and I hope they send me one when they do it. But it's the perfect highlighter, why? Because it was created to do a function and it does the function. It serves its purpose, it does what it was created to do. This is why I can't use a dry erase marker because they never work for me and this illustration wouldn't work, but highlighters do. So we, when we talk about perfect love, we are talking about that God has given us a love that we live out what we were created to do. When we talk as Nazarenes about Christian perfection, we're not saying that we are completely without sin. We're saying that we're living in the way that God created us to live and living in obedience to who God created us to be. Doesn't mean we're perfect in the sense without blemish. It means we're perfect because we're doing what God has created us to do. And one of the things God has created every single one of us to do is, is to love. What, what made Jesus perfect isn't that Jesus was sinless, though he was sinless. What made Jesus perfect was that his entire life was lived out in obedience to the Father. 
His entire life was lived out doing what God had called him to do, what God had asked him to do. And we see that lived and demonstrated through Christ. Yes, he was sinless. But his perfection came in obedience to doing what God had called him to do. The other thing that I want you to understand about love is that as we move towards perfect love, what we also begin to see is, is that the way that we understand what love is, is that we love because we were first loved. We were loved by God. That's how we understand what love is. We also love God. So we learn what love is through God, but we also love God. And would we love God, one of the things that Jesus tells us in John's gospel and John reiterates in his epistles is, if we love God, what do we do? We love a neighbor. We love each other. And so what we do is, is first off, we know what love is because God has loved us. We love God, but then we also love someone else, don't we? We love our neighbor. And then the beauty of it is, is that if I'm loving my neighbor, if I love Philip and Alyssa, guess what? If they're loving their neighbor, they love me. And we get to live in a reciprocal relationship of love. And the author Dallas Willard would tell us, this is what love is. This is what it is to be a Christian. It's to know what love is from God. It's to love God, but it's also to love other people and then for other people to love you. And this is what perfect love is. Dallas Willard says it this way, we are loved by God who is love and in turn we love him and others through him who in turn love us through him. That's a whole lot of words, but it's an incredible statement. We love God because he loved us first. We love others because he's called us to do that, and those others love us too. And Dallas Willard would tell us, this is what perfect love looks like. What does Jesus look like? It's what he looks like. And so perfect love is an important thing to understand if we're going to talk and live out Joy. Let's look at one more passage on love and kind of how this plays out, and then we'll, we'll get into joy, I promise, at some point. So, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, I want you just to hear, think, think through what Dallas Willard just said to us. We love God. We love, uh, God loves us. We love God. We love others. Others love us because they're living in the same world we are, and we all love each other. All right? That's not a very good way to say what he said it much better. But here, here the way that Paul kind of brings this home to us. For the love of Christ compels us. Some of your translations, the love of Christ urges us on. The love of Christ pushes us. Why? Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, then therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. If we are not living for ourselves and we're living for Christ, what are we doing? We're loving. We're, we're, we're loving our neighbor. This is what we are supposed to be doing. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. For the one who died for them and was raised. This love compels us. It urges us. It pushes us. So let's kind of take that and let's put this in a passage Let's talk about joy. So the passage today is from Philippians. Believe it or not, I had to, when I was writing my sermon, I got to the end. I'm like, I'm cutting these whole two pages because I wrote too much. So I've cut two pages in case y'all want to know. All right, so let's go to Philippians. Philippians chapter four, verse two. Everybody's favorite passage in Philippians. I urge Eudia, 
in Scythony to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, let's just pause here because I want you to see what's going on. And some of you might remember I preached a sermon about this passage, but it was a really, really long time ago, like plus 10 years ago. So let me just go through what's going on. Judea and Scythony are having a disagreement. What is the disagreement about? We don't know. Does it matter? No. They're having a disagreement. And Paul calls them out in front of the church by name. And for some of us, that makes us a little uncomfortable because we think whatever this was they were upset about, the fact that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about them. That makes us a little uncomfortable. But the incredible thing about this story is this was not the first time that Judea and Sithenes' names were called out in church. And the reason we know that is the language that Paul uses here. That very end of that statement in verse 3, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. What is Paul saying? We don't know exactly, but we have a pretty good understanding of how the early church baptized Christians. When they baptized a Christian, this is what they would do. Someone would stand before them and they would say, Judea, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May you rise and walk in the newness of life, for your name is written in the book of life. Sithony, come join me. Scythia, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May you rise and walk in the newness of life, for your name was written in the book of life. What is Paul doing? In this passage, Paul is saying to Judea and Sithony, I don't know what you're arguing about. I don't care what you're arguing about. There is only one thing in this life that matters. That your name is in the book of life. And whatever it is you think you're upset about, whatever it is that you don't like, whatever it is you're mad about, it does not matter. Because the only thing that really does matter is that our God sent his son and his son lived, died, was crucified, was resurrected so that you might have life. And whatever disagreement you're having is not worth jeopardizing that new life. So Paul tells them, but, but this is what I want you to do. Put that aside. And what do you need to be doing inside of, instead of arguing? This is what you need to be doing. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. In case you didn't hear me, let me say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. Not this disagreement, not what you're arguing about, not what you're upset about. That's not what's to be known among everyone. Your graciousness is to be known among everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true 
Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, these are the things to dwell on. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul calls us and calls them rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. To have joy. To have joy because it's in the context of understanding that life comes in the understanding of what Christ has done. And is re- we are reminded about it through baptism. These are things that we rejoice in. So let's talk about joy. Joy is not dependent on outside circumstances. Joy relies on one thing, our hope and life in Christ. That's where joy comes from. Joy will not come from present circumstances. Joy will not come from a good situation at work or a new job. Joy joy doesn't come from those things. Joy comes from one place, our hope and life in Christ. That's where joy comes from. Look at what, Paul, or what John tells us, or how John records this story uh, in his gospel. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 11, this is Jesus. He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. I love this because you kind of have to ask the question, you told me what? So we back up two verses and we'll see this. As my father has loved me, I also loved you. Remain in my love. For some of you, hopefully, you're like, Pastor, this sounds like what you talked about earlier. Exactly. Where does the joy come from? Where does Christ's joy come from? Remaining in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. What made Jesus perfect? Was it that he was sinless? Well, he was but he lived in obedience to his father. And Jesus tells us, remain in my love. And you want to remain in me? Keep my commandments, just just as I am doing. Live this way. This is where joy is. So today I wanna give y'all, kind of to pull it into kind of some practicality, five practices that help build joy into our lives. So we'll go through these. Uh, I've got just five things and we'll wrap it up. So the first one is connection. The first thing for us to have joy in our lives is to realize that we are all interconnected. The lie that so many of us hear every single day and so many of us believe is the lie that we are alone or that we are competing with others. You're, You're not alone. Life is not a competition that we are connected to one another, that we are dependent upon one another, that we are allies with one another, that we rejoice when others have good things happen to them. That we live this life as an interconnected people. We live this life together. We're connected. The second one is, is that there's a certain amount of just plain old acceptance that we have to deal with. Whether or not we like it, this is the way things are. This is where we are. 
The joy that I felt that night with my mom on the dark streets of New Orleans, there was nothing happy about that moment. But it's where we were. We were in the midst of a tough year. We had hard days ahead of us. But being with her, being in that moment was something that brought joy. Accepting the moment of knowing this, this is just where we are. Now, I didn't always feel joyful through it. Those nights when my mom would wake up in the middle of the night and try to escape from the hotel room, you know, those, those were not joy-filled moments, I admit it. But accepting that and, and being a, a real part of those moments brought joy. And joy comes from that acceptance that life isn't fair. If we are waiting for life to be fair, you're going to wait for a really long time because life is not fair. But accepting where we are is where we find joy. The third one is reframing. Reframing asks us the question of what are you afraid of? What brings you anxiety? I had a story uh, for, this, for this one. And then yesterday I was running and I was listening to a book and uh, it was the book's written by two pastors and one of the pastors tells a story and I'm like, ooh, that's a better reframing story than the one I had for my sermon. But in the story, the, the pastor told this story. He said when he was in his early 20s, his dad and him were very, very close to each other. Everything he needed, anything he, he ever had, he had any questions, he went to his dad. When he was in his early 20s, his dad passed away. So he started praying, Lord, what I want more than anything else in life is a man to come alongside me, to walk with me through hard situations, to walk through me, walk with me when I have questions. That's what I want more than anything else. And years, decades went by, and that prayer was never answered. And he said he was, got to be much older, and he was, began seeing a counselor and was talking to his counselor one day and told his counselor this story. And he said his therapist looked at him and his therapist said, is, is there anyone in your life, any younger men who would say that about you? And he said, well, yeah, he's, I, I could just name two or three or off the top of my head that would say that I've been that for them. And he said his therapist looked at him and said, you know what, maybe, just maybe, the fact that you are able to be that for someone else means that through your 20s, through your 30s, God was answering that prayer, but not answering it in the way that you thought he was answering it. But the fact that God used you in that way in other people's lives is proof that God answered that prayer in those years that you didn't think God was there, when you didn't think God was listening to you. And, and reframing that story to him changed his life. Understanding that one of the truths that we have to deal with, no matter what, is this. Y'all ready? God is present. God is present in every situation. And not only is God present in every situation, God is working in every situation. Our struggle is not that God isn't present. The struggle isn't that God isn't working. The struggle is, is that we don't look to see him in those moments. The other struggle we have is sometimes we want to tell God how to work in those moments. One of my favorite books is this tiny, tiny little book 
called When God is Silent. And in that book, the author, Barbara Brown Taylor, has one line. I don't remember another thing about the book, but I remember this one line. Some of you have heard me say it before. She makes the statement, only idols have to answer, but God has more freedom than that. Because when we pray to God, we tell God, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to act. And if you don't act in the way that I'm acting, then you didn't do it. That's not God. That's an idol. Because idols have to do what we tell them to do. But God works and acts in ways that are beyond anything we can understand. There are times he does exactly what we want. That's awesome. There's a whole lot of times when he doesn't work the way we want him to work. And sometimes we need to take a step back and reframe the situation because when we reframe it, we see that the trauma of those events sometimes lead to growth. That sometimes those negative events in our lives lead to transformation. That sometimes the curses in our lives are blessings. God is everywhere. God is always working. Your future is not dependent on this situation. And most of the time, these situations aren't eternal. There are some that are. But sometimes we just have to open our eyes and see God in the midst. See God how God wants to work, not how we want him to work. The fourth one is gratitude. What if your problems were not your primary focus, but gratitude? When I think of this, one of the the stories that comes back to me is after I had graduated high school, I went back to my high school and one day I had something going on. I I think I spoke at at chapel. And so after chapel, I went and saw some of my teachers. And one of the teachers I went to see was my, my favorite high school teacher I've told stories about before. Kara's my sister's favorite high school teacher as well, uh, Mr. Hamlet. And I go in Mr. Hamlet's room and we sit down and we talk. And I remember that day Mr. Hamlet said to me, he said, John, your dad was such a great man. I'm, I'm so sorry you lost him so young. And then words fell out of my mouth. I, I don't remember even thinking them through. They just plain old fell out of my mouth. And what I said back to him was, I had more of a father in 13 years than most people have their whole lives. You see, gratitude can can bring joy to those difficult moments, can bring joy to the places that are pain. Because guys, part of the problem is complaining is a habit. Finding the negative is a habit but also gratitude is a habit. We get the opportunity to see God in moments that we don't always get to see him. We get to see the great things that God has done for us. And I really believe kind of putting reframing and gratitude together changes so much for us. That we can take our hardest, our darkest moments and in those moments see the beauty of what God is doing and it brings joy to our hearts. It brings joy to our lives. Acceptance is no longer fighting reality. 
And gratitude, gratitude is embracing reality, embracing where we are, embracing what's going on. And the last one is really kind of the culmination of the first four. If you were to take connection, acceptance, reframing, gratitude, put them all together, what would you get? Generosity. The, the joy comes from being generous. That when we take these hard situations and we, we learn to walk through them and we learn to walk through them with God, that when we get to the end, we are thankful. And when we are people who are thankful, that gratitude turns into generosity. To be able to give things away, to be able to give our lives to other people. Generosity is not just about money. It's about time. It's about life. It's about caring. It's about listening. And joy comes from the opportunity of just being able to, to be generous, to listen, to walk with one another, to take my pain, to take my hurt, to take the places in my life that there's no way they could ever bring joy, to take those moments and to turn them into something that I can give back to someone else as a gift. You know what that's called? It's called a miracle. It's called God doing incredible things in our lives. And guys, this morning, as we kind of wrap up this series, as we talk through these things, as we walk through these, I hope that one of these five things somehow struck you to say, you know, Pastor, that, that's a place I need to work. I'm not good at reframing my situation. I'm not good at being happy for the place I am in life. Maybe I need to, to recalibrate that. Maybe I need to find the joy in what God is doing. And my hope and my prayer for us this morning is that we, we find those places, we find those places in our lives that the world says there's no way to bring joy from this moment. And to take those moments and to give them to God and say, let me see what you can do with this. Some of the hardest days of my life have been watching my mom decline through dementia. But there were those moments in the midst of that that were sheer and utter joy. To see the beauty of those moments, to see the connection, the acceptance, the reframing, the gratitude, and the generosity of those moments. To see God wants to work that way in your life. God wants to take those things in your life and work in amazing ways. And this morning, as we close, we're going to close as we have been closing. If you are uh, newer to us, uh, what we have been doing is Pastor James will be down here at this altar. If you would like to come and pray with the pastor, James would love to pray with you. If this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, James would love to talk to you about that and pray with you. I will be down at this altar. Uh, I will be down there to anoint. If anyone wants to be anointed uh, for healing, I will be right down there. And then the other two altars are always open for however you need to pray. This morning, if there's one of those five words that struck you in a way to say, I, I need to do better there. Or there's a situation in my life that brings me no joy. And there's, Pastor, there, there's no way it can bring joy. 
I don't know. But I know that there is a God who takes those moments and can use them. But we have to give them to him first. And sometimes we might just need to give something away and just say, God, you need to have this. You're not working the way I wanted you to work. I admit it. I need you to work how you want to work. And I need to be okay with that. So today as we sing, I just hope that we might find that place to say, God, take this moment, take this situation, it's yours. It's a lost cause. But in your hands, it can be something incredible. Let us stand as we sing.